Amen. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, Father, on the back of that uh, worship, just singing and uh, Rachel's prayer. I really pray now as I uh, get ready to preach that the words that I speak that are just from me, uh, a simple human being, would be empowered by you, God, that you would really reach into the hearts of people that are listening, wherever they may be, if they're listening live or if they're listening later on. I pray that you would be at work, Lord, and, and really encourage people with what I'm speaking about today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, yeah, we're going to wrap up a series today on the life of David. Um, the last time I preached a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, how difficult it is to uh, preach to an empty room. Um, it literally was empty uh, on the Wednesday night. Um, so it's nice to have about four or five people that, uh, that are with us today to at least hopefully get a little bit of an atmosphere uh, going in the place. Um, so I'm expecting lots of amens and hallelujahs and praise the Lord's and uh, maybe you can join us at home as well. Um, but you're very welcome, wherever you are watching this, I want you to know that you are so welcome uh, joining us today. Whatever you believe, whatever you think, wherever your relationship with God may be, even if it's non-existent, you are welcome. And today I'm going to be speaking about, um, as you know, King David. Uh, we've been talking about him and a few parts of his life over the last few weeks. And today's story is called David and Nathan. You might be thinking, Oh, I've heard of David and Goliath, I think David and Bathsheba, David and Nathan, not, not so sure about that one. Well, um, if you don't know it, then I'm hopefully going to be able to share it with you this morning and equally challenges because what Nathan does is he challenges David on what we heard about last week. And you might be thinking, last week, I wasn't on last week, I don't know what's going on, who's this David guy? A really quick recap on what we've been looking at on this guy. Probably the most famous king in the Bible, maybe even the most famous man in the Bible outside of Jesus, uh, was a guy called David. And we've looked over the last five weeks or so at these different uh, parts of his life. First of all, he is chosen as king. Then he defeats Goliath, the giant. Um, then he escapes Saul, who was the current king at that time. Then uh, he messes his life up with um, a lady called Bathsheba that John spoke about last week. And now we are on to Nathan and David. And if you're wondering about what happened, I'm going to quickly get into um, last week's story a little bit today because it leads on to where we're going. I'm not sure about you, but um, I, I believe in a God that restores, that fixes broken things, that helps us to recover when we make a mistake. Um, and I'm sure you've got experiences of, in your life where things haven't quite worked out the way that you wanted them to. I've got a funny story that I'm going to very quickly share, a, a moment in my life whereby um, something broke and made me quite embarrassed. Um, and I'm going to use a little prop, which you'll have to use your imagination for. But back when I was about 13 years old, um, I was a uh, wannabe actor. Uh, I was kind of seeing my path towards the West End. I'd been in a couple of shows. I played Dodger um, in Oliver, and we packed out the theater, over a thousand people, and I was like, yes, this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be this famous West End actor or something along those lines. Well, I went downhill quite quickly because on the back of being Dodger, um, I ended up just being an extra in the next show that we did, which was called Fiddler on the Roof. 
Well, I'm sure you've heard of that story, um, but if you haven't, it's, a, it's quite a famous one, and um, it's all about uh, the Holocaust and things around that and, and that time. Um, so if you haven't seen it, watch it. But the funny story is that I was an extra, and one of the roles that I had as an extra was that I had to do one of the dances. It was a Jewish dance, and it was like a, a kind of celebrationary wedding type, type scene. And basically, we had to have these uh, kind of champagne bottles on the top of our heads, so just like this. I'll come down a bit so you can see. And they were meant to be like that, exactly as they are on the top of my head. And you came out, we did these, you know, the, the dance where they're on their knees, and it's all slow motion and all that kind of stuff, and it was really good fun. But basically, when I went out onto the stage and all of these hundreds and hundreds of people were watching, the three guys that I was doing this dance with burst out into laughter. And I was like, what's going on? So I completed the dance, didn't know what was going on. But when I came off stage, I realized that my champagne bottle was doing that and dangling down. And I looked like an absolute numpty uh, in front of all of these hundreds of people. I was absolutely embarrassed, so embarrassed, because I just didn't know why everybody was laughing. But it turned out that that's why they were laughing. My champagne bottle on my head was broken. Now, obviously, that's quite funny and doesn't really affect anybody else's life. And it caused quite a few people to have a laugh. But what I'm going to speak about today goes far deeper than a dance that went wrong. Each of us has a story, each of us has an experience, each of us has a life that we've lived up until now, and there'll be ups and there'll be down, more than one down. And on the uh, table that I've got in front of me, I've got uh, three words written down that you might be able to see when the camera pans across to it. And it says three words simply, I am broken. And I'm sure that you relate to that in some way, because the truth is, we all are. We're all broken. We're all people that need fixing. And sometimes in life, and maybe where you're at right now, we feel like we are completely broken. We're in a mess. We're struggling. But I want to talk to us today, in the, in the short time that I've got, about someone who I believe fixes broken things. You see, we have an enemy that wants us to fail. If you believe in God, you have to believe in the devil. And if you're new to this and you're kind of just scrolling through your phone and you've come onto this talk and you're thinking, God, devil, what's he talking about? Well, we believe as Christians that there is a God, but we also believe that there is a devil. He is the source of all evil. That's what we believe. But he actually wants us to fail, and he tempts us to fail, and he causes us to feel tempted, and then sometimes we make decisions that are wrong and don't line up with what God would want, and therefore we fail. But as it says below that, I also believe in a God who wants to restore. We have an enemy who wants to make us fail, but we have a God who wants to restore us. So jumping into this, uh, this story then of, of David, and very quickly, because uh, because of time. Um, last week, uh, John looked into this story of David, and he's the king, and he's walking on his palace roof one night, and he looks down from his palace roof, and he sees Bathsheba, a very beautiful woman, bathing, and he says, oh, hello, I like a bit of that, and uh, he basically takes this uh, man's wife for his own. He gets her pregnant, then he brings back the husband from war, and then he ends up getting the husband killed, and it's an absolute mess. It's an absolute mess. But anyway, a little bit of time goes by, David knows that he's made an error, but time's passed on. He's taken Bathsheba to be his new wife, and they're just kind of living through life over the next few months or so. So let's read on from uh, 2 Samuel, 
chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 1 through to 12. So if you've got a Bible, it'd be great to read along with me. Otherwise, you'll probably switch off. So, uh, and it's important what, what we're reading here. So one, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 1 through to 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ulam that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then in verse 7, Nathan says to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring a calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And verse 12 says, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So David has been confronted with the sin that he has committed by a prophet called Nathan. That's who Nathan was. If you're wondering who this random Nathan guy is, he's a prophet sent by God. And there's some interesting things about that story that I've just read. Things that I kind of hadn't really... uh, thought about much, having read that story quite a few times in my lifetime. You see, Nathan comes to share a story with David that isn't just a random story. It's a story that he knows David himself will find abhorrent, like a horrendous story. And you might be thinking, well, why? It doesn't sound that bad compared to what David did. Why does David find it such a terrible story? I wonder if you've ever thought about why Nathan used a lamb in this instance, in this story. Remember what David used to do. Remember what David used to do. He was a shepherd that used to look after sheep. So this would have hit his heart because he would have known what it was like to look after sheep. Now you might be thinking, that's a bit weird, don't understand that. But David would have had a heart that cared for sheep because he was a shepherd and he would have protected them. And we read about him protecting sheep earlier in his life when he was young. And suddenly this man Nathan comes to him when he's many years older and shares a story with him that he knows is going to hit the heart of David. Because when he was a young boy, he used to look after sheep. 
and the thought of this man, this poor man's relationship with a sheep would have hit him. And he gets angry. He responds and he says, that's a terrible thing that that person has done. They must be punished. And Nathan responds to David and he says, David, you are that man. And you can imagine David's response just being, what have I done? What have I done? God tells him, David, I gave you so much. And even if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. And yet you took what wasn't yours and have committed a terrible, terrible sin. Why have you done that? David did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now he's being confronted with that by Nathan. And in verse 12, as I just read, God tells um, David that although he had committed his sin in private, God would punish him publicly. And the consequences in this instance was that the child that him and Bathsheba were expecting would die. David says sorry, and he says sorry, and he says sorry. And you can read on, uh, which we haven't got time to do, as to what David does when he realizes, oh man, what have I done? God would punish him publicly. Really key that we get hold of that because sometimes we think we can get away with stuff because we do it in private. But God is just, and if our sin is hurting people, I believe he'll bring it to the public front if he needs to. Especially if he knows that by doing that, it's going to stop you doing it again. And David learned that way. And by the way, just to jump back into that story of Uriah, you know, sometimes I think Uriah gets like this kind of uh, the, the hero story because of who he was and what he did, and absolutely rightly so. But you know, David knew Uriah. He wasn't just some random guy. Think about this. Why was Bathsheba living so close to the palace? Uriah must have been an important guy to live so close to a palace. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we read about some very important men to David. This is later on, of course, because it's kind of talking about his past. But we read about uh, a list of men that were very close to David. And if you've got a Bible open, flick through it. Flick to 2 Samuel 23, verse 39, and see the name that is counted last in that list. 2 Samuel 23, 39, it says, the last man listed as one of David's mighty men close to David that stuck by him when all else failed was Uriah the Hittite. A man that had been loyal to him, David ended up putting on the front line and, and having killed. There was so much depth to this story that sometimes gets missed. But there had to be because we had to be able to relate to it in our day to day to see just how bad a thing that this man called David, who was a king chosen by God, who was a king that God would say was a man after God's own heart, was able to commit these terrible things because he allowed sin to take over. Sin has consequences. Remember, God forgives David. He restores him, and that's what I'm talking about, but there are still consequences to the actions that David did, and of course, painful consequences for him as well. You know, you read on and you see that David spent day after day on the floor begging God not to take this child. You see, God hates sin. I don't think we really grasp hold of that. God hates sin. And why does he hate it? Because sin hurts God and it also hurts people. 
And you remember what the greatest commandments are? Love God and love people. Sin hurts people. You might think, oh, but my sin that I struggle with doesn't really hurt anybody else because it's just my little thing that I do every now and again. Well, it hurts you, and that hurts God, and it'll probably end up hurting somebody else later on in your life if it's not dealt with. God is a just God, and I believe too often we think as believers that we can get away with sinning, even if it's just a small sin in our opinion, because nobody will find out. Because it's not that bad. But what you do in private says a lot about who you really are. Because you're far more likely to do things when you're on your own or in a certain environment than you are in front of lots of other people. And I relate to that. Because, as always, this message isn't me knowing it all, telling you how to be like me. I am preaching this to me because I've, I've learned how important it is to, to live right, to aim to live right. We can't be perfect, but we can aim to live right. Wherever you are today, as I said earlier, whatever you believe, whatever your story is, however you're doing, as I look directly into this camera and you're looking back, Jesus wants to restore you today. Maybe you've done something that you can't shake. Maybe you've done something that's hurt people. Whatever it may be, Jesus loves restoring people. We see it so often as well. We see it so often in Scripture. Again, we haven't got time to go into it, but there are so many times where Jesus restores people. Think of Peter. When Peter disowns him on a cross, the next time Jesus sees Peter and he rushes off the boat, Jesus restores him. And he doesn't just say, yeah, you're forgiven now, well done. Don't talk to me again, though. He actually says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. He restores Peter to almost above what he was before he disowned Jesus. Think of the lady that was caught in the act of adultery and she gets lined up to be stoned by these religious men. And you'd think Jesus, being perfect, would have been on there with them, saying, who's going first, lads? But what does he say? Okay, you boys there, any one of you that hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. Silence. And all you can hear is the thud of people dropping their stones and turning and walking away. As Jesus looks back to this woman who probably thinks to herself, I deserve what they were about to do to me. But Jesus restores her. Jesus is in the business of restoration. That's something people should say amen to. So whether you sat there on your own having a cuppa, I want you to know that that's true this morning. Do you really believe that? If you did, you'd be celebrating. But he loves restoring people. But what's important is for us to recognize what we need to be restored from. As I said earlier, I am broken. It's written there in front of us, um, and, and the camera may go back and forth to it, because I am broken. As, a, as, as Chris, I know that I'm a broken human being that needed restoring and needs restoring and needs help and needs support. We all are in certain ways, but we have to recognize that and therefore seek the restoration that we need from Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, it won't do just to keep sinning little, little bits. It won't do to just say, oh, well, I haven't done that for a few weeks, so I can do it again. It won't do to just live in, a, in a, a wrong relationship with somebody because nobody's finding out, and it's okay for now. Nothing's really happening. It won't do to be addicted to things that you know don't line up with what God wants. It's not good enough if you call yourself a Christian to accept these things. We do sin. We do make mistakes. If we didn't, Jesus didn't need to die he died for our sin, but it won't do to just accept that little bit 
of that, that little bit of that. James 4, verse 9, says this. Let me ask you, when's the last time you did this over the sin you committed? Grieve, mourn, and wail over your sinful choices. That's what James says. Grieve, mourn, and wail. How many times do we just say, Lord, sorry about that yesterday? Oh, by the way, now I'm going to start to pray about the things that I want from you. But I better start by saying sorry for that. God, God's not fooled. You know, you can't fool him. You can't pretend that you're sorry. So if you have messed up, if you've done things that you shouldn't, James 4.9 is a great place to start on your knees before God saying, I am sorry that I did that. Please forgive me. Help me to be restored. You see, the thing is with sin is that it's a word that is three letters long that seems to be never used anywhere outside of church. And you know what? Sometimes it's not talked about enough in church as well. But it's the cause of so many of the world's problems today. It's sin. Sometimes you watch the news and, and there's all these people giving their opinions and I just want to scream. It's sin. Sin is the cause of this. This is why these things are happening. But the thing with it there as I've written below the word sin, is that when we sin and when we do things that we enjoy, we enjoy the pleasure, we enjoy the fun, we enjoy the, the feeling that it may give us, but we don't enjoy its friends. What do I mean by that? Well, when you do something, it's usually because you want to do it because it actually feels good, you enjoy it. But what comes along with it when we're not living right is that you give an open door to an enemy that hates you and wants you to fail who knows that we should be aiming to live right, whose arrows are pointing at us, waiting for that moment that we open a door to say, you know what, I'm going to let a little bit of sin in. Because when you let a little bit of sin in, and you think you're enjoying it, and you think you're getting away with it, and you think it's okay, then his mates come along. And we don't like them mates. Because those are the, those are the things that cause us to be down, sad, feeling anxious, feeling worried, feeling fearful. Because that's not what God wants us to feel like. But the enemy does. And this is truth that I hope you can get hold of. Anybody watching this, if you think it's okay to just do a little bit of sin, you are being badly deceived. And I think so many Christians are in that boat where they want to do what's right. They live right. They look good. Everything seems okay on the surface. But there's areas of their lives that they're choosing to not live in a pleasing way to God. It's a dangerous, dangerous path because we won't enjoy sin's friends. I hope you get what I'm saying with that. As believers in Jesus, we are called to be holy. I've put my Bible somewhere. I'm going to read from 1 Peter. Really quickly, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. It says this, Therefore, prepare your minds. Think about what I'm reading now. You know, you might be kind of half-heartedly listening, but if you believe in the word of God, listen to what I'm saying right now. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And verse 15 but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, as was written in Leviticus. It is important. James knew it. It's important to live holy. We can't be holy through our own righteousness. That's impossible. That's why we needed Jesus to die. 
but we can live right. And church, I believe this message is for us today, where as the, as the world changes in terms of what we've been used to, and who knows what's going to happen next, it's time for Christians to rise up, not just publicly, not just preaching great messages from stages that reach millions, not just looking good with a status on Facebook, but actually living a life that publicly and privately is holy and pleasing to God, Because I believe that when Christians do that, the Holy Spirit is empowered to do great things. And we'll see miracles. We'll see lives transformed. We'll see people turning back to Jesus. We'll see churches full when we're allowed to be. But this is real stuff that I'm preaching today. And I'm preaching it to me as much as anybody else. Because it will not do to accept little bits of sin here and there. I hope you're with me on that. I'm passionate about it because I see too many believers that are struggling Man, you you want people to have a breakthrough, and I do, and I pray for people to have breakthroughs. But too many are struggling. They they feel weak, they feel upset, they feel down, they're moaning, they're panicking, they're worrying, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's time to rise up. It's time to be strong. It's time to be a church that's on the advance, not on the defense. Advancing God's kingdom on earth, that's what we're called to do, but you have to live right in order to do that daily. Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, every day, live right. Did I do something yesterday that I shouldn't have? Lord, show me. Yeah, forgive me, Lord. I put that at the foot of the cross and I turn and repent. You know what David was brilliant at? He would sin and he sinned big time. He did things worse than anybody else I know. He did some horrendous things, but he didn't repeat his sin. You don't read three chapters on and say, suddenly David was walking on his palace again and he saw another lady. No, he learnt. And he learned the hard way because he learned through consequences that were horrendous for his own life. But he learned not to do it again. And he was restored. He was restored. Our day should start on our knees, praying to the God that has given us everything that we have. So often our prayer lives can be like a roller coaster, up one day, down the next. Things are good. So therefore, it dips a little bit, but then things go bad, and it goes boom, straight back up, pray, 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 pray. I had a great quote this week by a guy called Rich Wilkerson, who, um, if the screen zooms in, you'll be able to see it. It says, if you only pray when you have a problem, you have a problem. If you only pray when you have a problem, you have a problem. Too many Christians have a problem, I think, and I've been there, where you've gone days without praying, and then suddenly something comes along in your life that you need help with. And you pray, 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 and then it dips off again. How about a steady line of prayer no matter what's going on? Not just two minutes over your cornflakes. That's the band to come up, Matt and Rach, as I prepare to close. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Paul says this, When I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was a master of understanding that because he went from being someone who really thought a lot about himself to realizing that he himself was nothing. And the weaker that he was, whether that be through his own mistakes and sin or whether that be through things that happened to him, he realized that in his weakness he was made strong because of Jesus. And that is true for us today. Because you know, I'm going to go down to this little table and you probably won't see me, but you'll see what's written on these letters. And it says, I am broken. That's what it says right there. Because the truth is, is that each of us is broken. Each of us has made mistake after mistake in our life that we're ashamed of. None of us can be perfect. None of us can do what is right in the eyes of God. Otherwise, as I said earlier, Jesus didn't need to die. But you know what Jesus said? 
Jesus said, I'm going to take hold of everybody's brokenness. And I'm going to take the punishment myself. Even though I am perfect, Jesus says, I'm going to take the punishment myself. And I'm going to become broken and take everybody's brokenness upon me. Because of my love that I have for each of them. And you know what happens? Because Jesus took it away, because Jesus takes our sin away, because the mistakes that we've made have been paid for by Jesus, then this sentence changes. And you might be able to see what it's going to change to in a moment. Because as Jesus changes things, as Jesus restores our lives, as Jesus changes the the atmosphere in what you're living in right this second, you change that sentence from I am broken to I am okay. And you know that might just be a start point. But boy, does it look better than I am broken. I am okay. But I'm only okay because in my weakness, I'm made strong by Jesus. Taking hold of my broken life. Paying the ultimate price on a cross. Why? It's so unjust. It's so unfair. But he did it for me and for my sin and for your sin. Because we're broken people that needed restoring. And Jesus said, you know what? I'd rather go to hell without, I'd rather go to hell for them than heaven without them. I'd rather go to hell for them than heaven without them. That is powerful. Thank you, Jesus. So two things as I finish. I've gone on a little longer than I wanted to, but oh well. Two things simply, and then I promise I'm done. The first one, church, believers, Christians, if you need to stop doing what you're doing, stop doing what you're doing. If you know there's areas of your life, sometimes it's like, oh, I can't help it, I can't help it. That's not good enough. Get the help that you need. But it's time, if we truly believe what we do, to stop living in a way that doesn't please God because he calls us to be holy just as he is holy. Turn away from it. Repent. We know what that looks like. It's a complete turning away from what you're doing wrong and going in the opposite direction. Not sorry for today till I do it tomorrow. If you need to put things in place to make sure that you don't fall back into it, do that. Get the help that you need from God and from people to turn away from that sin. And secondly, church, are we ready to receive broken people? You might say, yeah, of course we are. We always have been. But I believe in this time. You know, we're living in a time, I read this recently, where everything is permissible, but nothing is forgivable. Everything is permissible, but nothing is forgivable. And what I mean by that is that you can be who you want to be, be whoever you want to be. It doesn't matter, because everybody can be whoever they want to be. But the moment you make a mistake, we want you to know that you'll be cast out because nobody will forgive you for what you've done. That's the society that we live in. And the church has got to open its doors to welcome those broken people that have messed up their lives and that need restoration. Not because we do it. We, we have no power to restore people, but Jesus does. And our lives need to be a reflection of that. So I'm done. I'm going to pray. And I hope that this has helped. Even if it's just helping one person to turn away from sinful living. The world needs to see what God can do 
with men and women that are completely surrendered to him. And Lord, I pray, starting with me in my brokenness, I thank you for your grace that allows me to be stood on this stage because there's nothing else that does. And I thank you that I've been restored by the power of Jesus. And I pray for everybody watching, both in this room and at home, live or later, that they would get hold of this truth, take it on board, aim to fix themselves what they've done or or are doing that they shouldn't do. If they need to say sorry to people or to you, that they would do that. But that we as believers in Jesus would choose to live a life that is holy and pleasing to you. Just as you are holy, we are called to be holy. And I pray that you'd help us in that. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.